All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this roundtable discussion, I'm joined by Howie Bentley of Cauldron Born, Jason Tarpey of Eternal Champion, and Deathmaster of Doom Sword to discuss their personal history with sword and sorcery, Richard Tierney's Simon of Gitta series, Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword, underrated gems within the genre, new projects from their respective bands, and more. As always, thank you all for listening out there. And if you'd like to help the show grow and you're listening on your podcasting platform of choice, please leave us a review. And if you happen to be watching the video on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe because it does help. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you all again. Uh, before we dive deeper into some of the topics we had planned, uh, you know, just in case folks aren't familiar, this is their first time tuning in. Thought it'd be a good idea if we went around the Zoom room here and gave a some brief insight into your introduction to the genre. So maybe uh, I guess we'll start with Howie, Jason, then we'll go Joe, and I'll round it out, and then we'll we'll be off to the races. You know, there are a number of things leading up to it. Mainly, you know, I was getting into uh, reading Savage Sword of Conan when I was um, a teenager in the 80s, in the early 80s. And then I saw that movie, John Millie says, Conan the Barbarian. And that really made me want to go out and find the, the paper. I'd seen the paperbacks in the store before so with the Frank Frazetta covers. And I picked those up. Uh, I guess it was Lance Ace paperbacks or Lancer. And uh, and just really got into reading that. At the same time, I was reading some sword and sorcery comic books, you know, in my early teens in the 80s, like Arax on a Thunder, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, and that kind of thing. And, you know, the time I'm older than you guys, obviously. So the time I was growing up, these movies were coming out, I guess because of the success of uh, Milius's Conan the Barbarian. There are all these other movies coming out, too, like The Sword of the Sorcerer, Beastmaster, and, and all these things, too. So in a way, it was like, for my father's generation, my father grew up in the 40s and 50s, and there were always Westerns on television, Western serials and, and Westerns on cinema. And to a, a lesser degree, that was the way of it when I was growing up in the 80s was this sword and sorcery. And there were a lot of fantasy movies, too, you know, like high fantasy and stuff like that, like Dragon Slayer and that kind of thing. But I was more into the hard as nails sword and sorcery. And I would just pick up every back then things, you know, obviously it was pre-Internet days. So you would take what you could find, then you'd go into a store, a bookstore. And I was reading some of those Conan pastiche novels, and then a little bit later on, I got into Death Dealer novels by uh, James Silk. It says James Silk and Frank Frazetta on the covers. But uh, anyway, it just sort of uh, went from there, and I uh, really got into, I was really into heavy metal, too, at the time. 
So I decided to eventually put those two things together. And I won't go into all that. Maybe we'll we'll talk about that later, but I want to give the other guys some time. So I'll, we'll, we'll move on. All right, Jason, how about yourself? Um, Jason Tarpy. Uh, so my introduction to the genre I, was similar to Howie's. Um, when I was a kid, I probably got a hold of the Conan comic books first or seen the Conan movies. I can't remember which was first. It's probably the movies, actually, now that I think about it, because comic books came after I was watching those type of movies. So I think the introduction was probably Conan the Barbarian, then Conan the Destroyer, and then uh, Beastmaster, Dungeon Master, you know, all those movies. Roll. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and so then it probably came the comic books, and I don't think I was aware of the literature yet. I don't think, you know, I wasn't aware of Robert E. Howard in, in the genre as a whole. Like, I kind of just was drawn to those movies and in the comic books i wasn't so into the superhero thing i kind of like how we looked for the the conan or the a rack or the you know the, the good stuff next tier <laughs> what do they call them uh clonans yeah <laughs> right and so i got into the comic books and later i kind of i didn't i wasn't a big reader you know, even into my early 20s. So I kind of had that in the background. I really liked fantasy, but it was really just, that was the extent of it was movies and comic books. I was in a hardcore band called Iron Age before Eternal Champion. And we were really influenced by this band called the Icemen, who are a New York hardcore band. And they had a song called Shadow at a Time, which is the H.P. Lovecraft short story, of course. And the song was about that story, but I didn't really get it from the lyrics. I was like, what are these lyrics about? And so my friend actually knew about H.P. Lovecraft, and he was like, oh, song's about this writer. And I was like, oh, I thought that was a movie director. I think we talked about this yeah. before, Justin. Yeah. And so that was my introduction, was finding Lovecraft, and then finding out that him and Robert E. Howard were kind of part of the same circle. It was after Lovecraft that I went and read all the Conan stories and then found Brandeck Moore and, and all the other characters I kind of just dove in head first I didn't stop reading for like a decade after that just <laughs> absorbing everything so awesome and how about yourself Joe what was your introduction my introduction was really unusual this movie called Conan the Barbarian <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I got hooked ju just the same way I would add Excalibur a real pull and i would even say that the arthurian cycle itself i don't know if you want to call it sword and sorcery would be forcing the term although i think you could definitely call it fantasy and it and it is going back in time a, a long long way but yeah that's conan and excalibur are the two movies that pulled me in and then Tolkien, I think it all snowballed at, at the same time. Like Jason, I don't think I was a great reader, but then possibly because I didn't really find anything that I was really interested in reading, because then when I discovered Sword and Sorcery and Dungeons and Dragons and Heavy Metal, it all became one big <laughs> snowball that became an avalanche, and that was it. All right, and I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record, you know, John Millius, Conan the Barbarian, but just like Jason, I would say my introduction was more from the horror side of things. I grew up in a lot of horror movies, so similar to Jason, I thought H.P. Lovecraft was a director until I start looking into it. You know, this guy's a writer, friends with Robert Howard, and then you just kind of you just kind of slide in the back door and you, you find Robert Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, and then you just go down the well. Another thing all you guys obviously have in common is, on top of Sword of Sorcery, is your, your metal background. 
around. So you implement the genres into your music. So can you each speak a little bit about, you know, the importance of sword and sorcery as it's expressed in your in your music? It was really just a natural progression for me. It was like every band that I joined, I didn't, was in any really good bands, even, you know, like try to play in some cover bands and stuff. But my, my real goal was to form a, you know, a proper heavy metal band. And people kept, and I grew up in rural Kentucky and everybody kept saying to me, we need to move down further south where all those heavy, you know, that people into all that heavy stuff like you are. People kept saying Atlanta. And I moved there in 88 to go to the Atlanta Institute of Music. And my idea was to form, when I finished there, to form the ultimate heavy metal band. To me, the ultimate heavy metal band, the band that I always wanted to hear myself. And I was into all these themes and I would always, you know, if we would, start bands or whatever. I was always the lyricist. Nobody could write lyrics. And it really just was a matter of in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You know, <laughs> I could write lyrics a little bit and really got into that. And uh, I just wrote about stuff that I just naturally gravitated toward. I wasn't interested in mundane things like relationships and politics and social issues and all this crybaby stuff. So I wanted to get into... Um, kind of stuff I, I like to read about and i started writing lyrics like that and it and it just sort of snowballed to where i was doing more and more of that and and the more i did that and then the more attention i got for doing that then i kept reading more and more sword and sorcery until it just became this pure thing it was just sword and sorcery heavy metal and that's pretty much you know the same thing that that uh, jason and, and joe do with their bands is what i would call sword and sorcery heavy metal so that that was is pretty much the story in a nutshell gotcha now jason you said you started out in a punk band what was the thematic shift for you well as a teenager when you're in a like a hardcore band your world is so small you kind of write about your friendships as kind of a trope you know what i mean and maybe i did that for a while in my in my first band and then by the time i got into iron age i was like i can't like how we said write about relationships mundane life politics like I shouldn't have any place telling anyone how to live. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the whole moralistic view of writing songs did, did, wasn't appealing to me. And so I kind of had to think about what kind of lyrics I like. And I like lyrics that have stories. You know, I think that songs can just be like a movie or a short story. And I'm thinking about the stories I like now. I'm reading uh, Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith, Lovecraft, Michael Moorcock. And as I'm forming Eternal Champion, the goal is just to write songs that you can follow along with the lyrics and kind of give homage to the story to pull you in. You know, it's a little bit of escapism, but it's also engaging. I mean, just because these songs are about, we'll call it sword and sorcery or fantasy, just because they're about other worlds doesn't mean they're unrelatable. They're still about humans. You know what I mean? They're just, they're people that we that we make up, that we see ourselves in or... Uh, see other people are enemies or you know you can't help but kind of project yourself onto these stories or if you're a writer like we are projecting yourself onto these characters so there's just a very human engaging element in writing about these stories they're so visceral and they're so emotional and that's kind of what music is good for is conveying emotions and that's kind of what these stories are full of even if it's like two emotions <laughs> like anger and <laughs> battle lust but you know what i mean it's yeah. just you can't help but be like enthralled by it and and so that was that was the goal i i saw i was like well it's not only is it an homage to the genre which i love and in these stories which no one's really reading anymore when eternal champion started i was like well i can do that and i can also 
for people who don't even care to read the story or care about the genre at all can also just be pulled in by the human or relatable elements of the stories. So that was the goal. How about you, Joe? Well, for me, mainly it's escapism. I have to confess, mm. like when probably the world you live in, you're not quite satisfied with, you start dreaming of other worlds. As far as the actual influence of sword and sorcery in uh, Doom Swords music, I would say the biggest influence was Michael Moorcock. I found that that the the contrast of Law and Order and the hero of the story being a, a complete anti-hero was the reason why it had such a heavy influence on on me because. You go to write music, you go to to write lyrics. You you strive to communicate like a feeling, uh, which for me, the, the keyword is epic, because above all, we can talk about sword and sorcery fantasy, but the keyword I associate with my music is epic. You try and kind of picture yourself in certain situations, maybe living in, uh, being a character in the story. I always thought I'd, I, I wouldn't be a kind of Conan kind of type. I would be more the guy that ends up being protagonist in the story, but maybe has some darker side to them and it's not necessarily all out good. By all means, Conan wasn't, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, being a yep. being a kind of an archetype character, you know, he was all out something. Whereas Michael Moorcock, I mean, the attractiveness of Elric compared to other characters is its complexity other character complexity and how Moorcock developed it. So yeah, and that's that's why that's why it features so heavily. And not necessarily explicitly. I mean like we we've done songs about Elric, the contrast of uh, order and chaos, inner conflict that's always present and it's more or less always deriving from from Moorcock. In fact the last album we published a long time ago now. It's called the Eternal Battle, which really just refers to your own yeah. internal battle that's never ending, right? So that's it, really. Joe, I can't believe I've never asked you this, but when you're growing up reading this stuff, are you reading it in English? So that's that's a cool thing. Uh, oh, by the way, when I say that Moorcock influenced, I don't know if I ever said this, uh, I, I wanted to call the band Stormbringer, but there was already... About a hundred million. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine that nowadays runs a distribution called Iron Tyrant in Italy. He had a, a much greater familiarity with the English language than I did back then. And a um, couple of days later, I don't, I don't know where he goes. You know the way you were looking for a band name that was basically, you know. Give me Stormbringer, but not Stormbringer. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, what about Doomsword? So uh, that's what I went with. But yeah, back to your question. There's a, a moment in time. So I moved to Ireland in 2004. Mm -hmm. So before then, I read and watched movies in Italy. Didn't do any English at all. In fact, you could argue I didn't have much English. <laughs> and and you, could, you can even see it in the lyrics. In the pronunciation of the words in the in the songs, like in the recordings, even like the resound the horn, that's like grammatically <laughs> incorrect. It was a play on sounding the horn, 
but because it was the second album, I was resounding, you know. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, <laughs> but because it was so, it was it was very wrong. It was ne- it never came across that way. <laughs> I never thought twice about that title. Me album. neither, dude. You just love, love that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, because you get you you like a sound resounds, but you cannot resound anything, you know. True. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so works. Uh, so then after that, I, I, I started reading in English. So there's the stuff I read before and it's the, the stuff I read after. And there's fortunately a few things like Tolkien, Moorcock and the major movies I managed to double. So yeah, I knew them in, in Italian, but I read them again in English because obviously the original, whatever the language is always, if you can read the original in its original language, it's definitely the superior version. Just curious on the same, while we're on that subject, did you ever notice any differences in any, uh, anything that got lost in translation from Italian to English when you read them in the other languages? So I'd be hard pressed to n- name examples, like specific examples, right. but yeah, plenty. Lots lost in translation or maybe approximated rather than, because that, that, that was the best thing you could do. You know, like, I mean, I read uh, an English translation of the Divine Comedy. Nah, forget it. (laughs) No point. Just curious also, uh, Howie and Jason, uh, Howie, was it always Cauldron Born? You know, Joe said he was, um, Doom Sword was a a Stormbringer. Was it always Eternal Champion with you, Jason? Yeah, it was always from like, the band name came first, actually, I think. So I knew right away that we weren't going to be writing songs about, uh, Oh, it wasn't going to be just about Michael Moorcock stories. It was just, we chose Eternal Champion just because it's kind of an all-encompassing kind of uh, like a name that readers of the genre will will know. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, as as Joe said, it's important to have an epic, even when it comes to your name, it should kind of evoke an epic feeling. And so Eternal Champion does that. And it's just kind of a, you know, it's it's just, it's a cool concept also, as Joe just said about the law and chaos, such an engaging, uh, it's so much uh, more relatable than good and evil. It's been done to death, and we've all seen it in so many forms. It's such an archetype that law and chaos is such a trope breaker, and Elric is such a trope breaker, and he's so much more relatable than Conan. You know, I mean, reading the Conan stories for the first time was, you know, insane is really visceral, visceral experience reading them, but it's not like you really feel like you're Conan unless you're like, I don't know, like a wrestler or a, you know, or like a combat veteran, you know what I mean? Yeah. Something like that. But right when you read Elric, you're like, okay, not every protagonist in these stories is like Conan. And every person that tries to write it, just a Conan type character fails. You know, you just, we already have it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to think of something new. So, you know, that was why we chose Eternal Champion because it's just a cool name and a, and a cool concept by Michael Moorcock. So. What about you, How Was it always Cauldron Born for you? Yeah, I... I read this book, The Black Cauldron, I guess I was 10, 11, maybe even 12 years old, something like that. It was fifth or sixth grade, something like that, around that time in the 70s. And um, I thought the book was pretty lame. I was reading better comic books. Then. <laughs> and by then, I'd moved on to Doc Savage paperbacks, and, and even those were better than that book. But there was one thing I really liked about it, and I think I, I read it for some kind of a – it was not like a competition, but this academic program where you get some kind of a – a ribbon or something if you read these books. I just did it for the hell of it. I think I got extra points on my grade or something for doing that. So I read this book, The Black Cauldron, and the only thing I liked about that book 
was the, the Calder Moor. The Calder Moor are these dead warriors they put in the cauldron, and this is based on Welsh myth, I guess, and they put these dead warriors in this cauldron and cast this spell, and they come back to life as these, you know, undead warriors. And the Calder Moor are like these demonic things. So that really left an impression on I me. Mean, the concept of Calder Moor and that name just really stuck with me when I was a kid. I'm like, I'm going to use that for something one day. I don't know what. And I was, I've just gotten into music around that time. I was like, nah, I couldn't use it for anything to do with music, but I'm going to use it for something. <laughs> and then later on, when I got this idea, you know, the, the whole sword and sorcery metal thing was coming along, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to form a band. And I'm going to call it Calder Moore. And, uh, and some guys even made fun of the name. They're like, yeah, Calder Moore and Skillet Born or whatever. And I'm like, no, man, you're, you're not, you're messing up. <laughs> you don't know what's going on here. So yeah, it was it was always called and born with me. It's a great name, but it's one of the best. <laughs> I love it. With I didn't know the story. how it works with the with the you know the C with the hand and everything. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was to do with like um, witchcraft. You know, like real kind of uh, witchcraft aura to it. I love. Like the album cover. With the you know the rising out of the cold. Yeah, cold yeah, it's, it's it blends in perfectly. Yeah, I know what you. Yeah, mean. actually, I, I know I'm gonna feel free to digress a lot because I have a very fond memory of Calder Born because so after we did this demo in three days, we reached an agreement with Underground Symphony and we went to visit their offices and the guy had just moved from his old place to the new one. Didn't really have furniture. Lots of uh, boxes of CDs everywhere. He had a desk and a chair for himself, but not for anyone, because he didn't receive that many guests, Maurizio. So he he said, um, sit down and looked around. No chairs. So pulled some uh, boxes of CDs and vinyls. And then, you know, in his kind of pitch to uh, try and convince us to sign for Underground Symphony, which he didn't need to do, but I was already fine with that. <laughs> uh, um, he was showing me how well he was working with um, with bands and she made, uh, gave me the Cauldron Born, Born of the Cauldron CD. That's 1997, is it not? That's 1997, uh, yeah. And you guys released your debut album, I think, a year later, didn't you? Yeah. Right after that. It was right after that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah recorded in 98, maybe very, very early 99 came out. So actually, that would make it twenty-five years old, in, <laughs> in, a, little, cool. in a little while. <laughs> I remember Maurizio telling me about Doom Soul. I was talking about doing another album, and I asked him how the reception was to this kind of heavy metal. Because when we did that album, we were almost too proggy for traditional metal fans, and we we're too traditional for prog metal fans, you know, people listen to Dream Theater and stuff like that. And of course, on uh, Underground Symphony, I think the only two bands that were doing this kind of metal was Calder Born and Doomsword. He mentioned Doomsword. He's like, well, we'll see when the new Doomsword album comes out, you know, how things are. He was very confident in that release. Yeah, we were the only two. And the rest of the, the it was mostly Italian bands. I think there was maybe one other American band that I could remember on Underground Symphony at the time. And that was Jack Frost band. I think it was called Frostbite, and that wasn't any kind of metal. It was just some kind of hard rock kind of stuff. And all the other Italian bands were playing the symphonic prog power kind of stuff on the label. So we had like the only two bands, Doom Sword and Calder Born, that were this kind of a true metal band. 
is on the way. Yeah. yeah. Just to ask you guys, we've been talking about sword and sorcery, obviously, but where's the line in the sand that must be drawn at some point in the story where we have sword and sorcery on one side and fantasy on the other? What's the what's the distinction to you guys? One of the things with sword and sorcery, I think, is it's it's a bit darker. The protagonists tend to be a bit morally ambiguous and self-serving. Everyone from Conan to uh, Elric to uh, Carl Edward Wagner's Kane not to be confused with Solomon Kane by Robert E. Howard. But these these characters are, are more morally ambiguous and they tend to act more on their own, whereas in the Tolkien-esque type, which is high fantasy, Tolkien-esque branch of heroic fiction, you have more of this group kind of thing going on. It's almost like a, a D&D game and where these group of people are working together. It tends to be for a cause. They're, they're driven by some sort of cause. It's almost like it it's their destiny they were destined to do this or it was fate that they they were chosen to come up against whatever is considered evil or wicked and to bring it down whereas character like conan or kane they are doing things that benefit them they just happen to be on the right side of the argument in situations they find themselves in. that think that's right yeah. on i mean that, that was really <laughs> yeah how he how he just knocked it out the park for everybody <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think he's right. I mean, sword and sorcery also team tends to be a short story format, which I think is kind of important for the genre because it's good for sword and sorcery to kind of pull you in and keep you there and read the whole thing in one. So you kind of stay in it, you know, cause that's kind of the point of these stories is to be a little bit more fast paced than a 300 page fantasy novel. It is more interesting. I think to have these morally ambiguous self-serving characters, you know, and it, how he's right about that again it's uh it's usually about one or two like a you know like a fofford and gray mauser type situation or uh you know niphthalene is always with a, a companion so you know it, it can kind of break those barriers a little bit you don't know if it's fantasy or sword and sorcery i think there's some books like that we might discuss one later but that was right on from how he got i don't have much to add other than yeah it probably usually contains some horror elements sword and sorcery almost always seems to have a horror element and it, it's really hard to tell if it's even fantasy or horror that's well that's my favorite kind of thing i really like when the horror is so strong that you know it's it's not really clear what genre it is you know joe uh right before you go you said you started with uh token so how was it you know from going from high fantasy to sword and sorcery did you notice the distinction very much yeah in fact my answer was going to be that echoing Jason, I think, uh, how his answer was right on. In my head, because I, I see things a little bit in, in in sets, so if you got like the whole fantasy genre is big, one big set of uh, literature, then you've got, within fantasy, you got, generally speaking, high fantasy and low fantasy. And I definitely think that sword and sorcery would be a subset of low fantasy. So uh, don't think it, you can call anything that has a, a spell every two seconds uh, sword and sorcery. It, there has to be there has to be a darker element, but also the the sorcery needs to be sorcery. So sometimes you know whoever performs it would be like the one character in the story that that does that. It's not like every every you know blasting fireballs at each other. Right. That's not sword and sorcery. Um, so that that's more or less the only addition i would have is that to me sword and sorcery is also 
if it, if it's high fantasy, then there's no chance it can be sort of sorcerer. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, in the horror elements, definitely. I mean, uh, we were uh, recording the new album, and we've done a three-part song on um, on the Scarlet Citadel by mm. uh, Howard. And I would, you know, if you read the whole thing, the whole thing wouldn't even be sword and sorcerer. Yeah, it is. But really, the sorcerer when when uh, when he's chained down uh, in the, in the dungeon and has to escape. And meets all these kind of horrors and saves a a sorcerer. That that's real sword and sorcery, right? Okay. To echo what Jason was talking about. That's that's the core of sword and sorcery for me. Then when Conan breaks out and goes to save Shamar with open pitch battle and all that, that it's just epic. It's not sword and sorcery per se. You just broke the interview, Joe, dropping uh Record a new Doom Sword album. That's all we're going to do. <laughs> I just got so excited. <laughs> Before we move on from there, just the uh, I I make a own distinction, my own distinction between magic and sorcery. You know, like you said, Joe, magic is, you know, everyone has it. Everyone has fireballs, or you know, there's there's a race that knows magic. But I view sorcery as there's stakes. You know, there's going to be consequences. There's great. A loss that must be had to use this you know there's that's that's how i make that distinction there yeah it's think- always like an unpredictable force that turns on the user usually or it's usually hated by the protagonist like conan hates it because yeah. there's no controlling that you know what i mean there's just it's unpredictable and so he would hate that you know what i mean so right makes sense right speaking of generalities you know there's a lot of varied material out there but it seems you know more often than not the sword aspect seems to be up front with a you know barbarian leaning protagonist trying to vanquish the sorcerer but you know how do you all feel about the shoe being on the other foot you know maybe with a a more magical leaning character having the sorcery at the forefront and can you think of any examples of that i like carlo wagner's cane stories and of course he is a swordsman but he's also a sorcerer. I guess some readers think of this character as a villain. He's the villain as the protagonist of the story, Kane. And uh, so I like the characters who use both. I can't think, I mean, I like some of the, the villains, the villains like in Howard stuff. I mean, the, the sorcerers is what I'm talking about, they're villains. As far as a, you know, a benevolent sorcerer or a sorcerer who's working on the side of what we would, I guess, perceive as good, the only one I can think of would be um, from the Solomon Kane stories would be in Longa, mm. you know, the old black African juju wizard who, who's also learned white man magic when he was a slave. He's the only one I can think of that would be using sorcery for good. But I've always leaned toward these characters like Kane and, and Elric to a degree. Elric, he uses sorcery and, and drugs just to stay alive. Yeah. And he's from a race. Melnaboneans practice magic. And then he comes into possession of this magic sword that gives him strength. So, you know, you've got the sword and the magic there. That's what I lean. Yeah, I got to agree with Howie with the cane. I mean, he's, I think Carl Edward Wagner makes it either into my top three or top five writers of the of the genre. And so uh, even though Kane is such a bad guy, you know what I mean? You can't, you're still kind of rooting for him. You yeah. know what I mean? That's very yeah. interesting. He's got a charm about it. It puts you in a weird position as a reader. You know what I mean? So, and Kane does use uh, sorcery for his own ends always. You know, he's just so self concerned always. And he's always plotting <laughs> with people. He's such a, 
he's so cunning. You know, what I mean, he's always there's always like tears to the plot and, and revelations in the end. And you know, Kane just uses anything he can. What he's he's very pragmatic. Mm. You know, in, in his uh in his use of it. So, but it, you know, it comes back to bite him. You know what I mean? In most most times, and so and Elric's a, a good pull too. I mean, he uses sorcery just to stay alive to be strong kind of differently than kane he's not using it uh to build an empire elric isn't even interested in empire building it you know in the beginning wants to shirk off his empire you know what i mean and and his sorts of sorcery element is uh more medicinal you know what i mean right i guess then then it comes later he uses sorcery in all kinds of ways but those are two really good uses of of the sorcery and and and, you know the genre well actually uh no, I'm not going to deviate for me, Elric. And I was specifically thinking of when he invokes Ariok. That, that's proper sorcery. Yeah, so forget spells and everything. Invoking a Lord of Chaos, sorcery. Yeah. <laughs> Dictionary definition. I'm going. I'm going to stick with the gentleman's answer and adding that you know we're all writers here do you guys have specific stories that you go to when you're looking for a kick in the ass creative wise i read a lot of nonfiction too history and like about historical battles and stuff like that i've been reading off and on a book called the vandals about um, genseric or um, geyseric um, which was the um, leader of a germanic tribe that one of them that brought down rome in its final days. So I read some of that stuff. There's nothing I really read to. I reread some stuff every now and then, um, but there's nothing I really go back to to, for any kind of inspiration for something I'm writing. Well, I really like kind of outliers in the genre. I really like Michael Shea. He's such a weird writer. You really have to pay attention to his stories as you're reading him. His prose is kind of stilted and it can be hard to follow, but He's a really good writer. I, I admire. I love uh, Fritz Leiber, Carl Edward Wagner again. He's just a big inspiration, I think, Wagner is to me. I like going back and reading Lovecraft and finding that magic again when I first read it and trying to get that feeling again. That's really inspiring. So Lovecraft's one is just like an old standard that uh, it inspires me. But And also lately I've been reading a lot of uh, like Splatterpunk, David Show, and um, I've been reading uh, Wraith of the Broken Land by S. Craig Zoller, which is really gritty. Uh, Western, I don't know what to compare it to, like maybe Blood Meridian or something like that, you know. So that stuff does inspire me too, you know what I mean, for like the uh, the fighting element, you know what I mean. I, I kind of look to Shea as an inspiration for uh, world building. His environments are so strange and alien, you know what I mean. They're so interesting to read about. And Lovecraft has all the atmosphere I want and the cosmicism I like. Carl Edward Wagner brought in the kind of amoral character that you know, is kind of interesting, which I like. So, yeah, those are some of them. Totally with you on the Lovecraft. The more you inch away from Lovecraft and then you come back to him, you realize just how much he stands out from his peers just in terms of mood. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Joe? What do you go to to get the spark going? So I think if I have to give a an answer at any moment in my life, you say, what, what, what you go back to, that would be Howard. But not Conan, though. I think the Bram McMorn and the call stories are the ones that really, I don't know, they, they have something more in them. I don't know why, maybe the character, I don't know. Just to give a, a slightly different spin, I'm a very oral and also a visual person. So for me, illustrations, paintings are actually what 
get me going with for inspiration. That's why I'm surrounded by them. I can't see, but see the bottom of the that dealer there. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, this this is a bit unusual. There's this uh, YouTube channel called the Cybrarian. No, I don't know if I'm allowed to drop the names. No, but sure. the Scottish guy that does uh, narrations of, um, well, for, for the majority, it's Howard stuff. His interpretation is out of this world. Like, really, I if you, if you were to pick one story just to get an idea, I would say either Del Cardas Cat or uh, Night of the Kings. Uh, one is a cult story, the other is... Uh, uh, Bram McMorn. Bram McMorn actually wig call in it because he comes yeah. into the future from. And if you listen to those stories, all the accents this guy pulls off, the atmosphere he injects in the story, I don't know, maybe because it's coming into my ears yeah. rather than through my eyes. Uh, music is for the ears, so maybe I should come in. Yeah. That way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, but yeah, that 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 would be it. Looking at paintings, I've got a lot of uh, books of uh, illustrators, not just Prozetta, even though he'd be my main influence. But uh, yeah. Here's a question I got for all you guys: What would you say is the uh, the most rare physical copy of a book that you own? Oh, that's hard to say. Probably, I don't know about rare, but they certainly go for a pretty penny. Would be I, I have a number of. Of collections of books like that but probably my most expensive collection would be the centipede editions of the yeah you know what i'm gonna say yeah, i knew you're gonna say that book. <laughs> that would probably be that and then i've got those death dealer paperbacks i've got all four of those and those those are exorbitant now i've got carl edward wagner's uh exorcisms of ecstasies quite a, quite a few i mean i could I've got every flat surface in my house is covered in books. <laughs> As a shame. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've got a ton of stuff like that. Those uh, Wagner uh, Centipede Press uh, things you were talking about, I don't think they go less for than four figures now. No. Is that right around well, there? or three at least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, high three, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's some of those that you see that I think I saw some that was like eighteen hundred, two grand or something like the other day for the whole set. Jesus. They were oh, signed wow. by the arts. Oh, too. yeah, I saw that too, Howie. I, I, that <laughs> I mean, even even the ones that aren't signed are um, just astronomical. What about you, Jason? What you got in the uh, dungeon? I wish I had it behind me. I have a, a Carl Edward Wagner. It's a, it's called an author's choice. It's a hardcover, small hardcover with just Carl Edward Wagner's stories and it's got River of Nights Dreaming, maybe at first just ghostly. I'm trying to remember what's in it. But it's signed by Carl Edward Wagner. So I like that I have his signature a lot. Wow. I found it in a bookstore in Seattle at the last time Eternal Champion played there last year. We were just went to this bookstore before the gig and I saw the book. I didn't know what it was. I'd never seen it before. It's author it says author's choice on the cover. It's got a, a sketch drawing of Carl on the front. And I saw that and I grabbed it. I was like, holy shit. And I looked at it. It said $75. And I was like, oh, I'm buying this. <laughs> and I looked and it had that autograph in there. I was like, holy shit, $75. This has got to be like hundreds of dollars. Bond. And it just became like a treasure immediately. Yeah. yeah. They didn't know what they that? had. You guys, have you seen that? The author's choice hardcover I'm talking no, about? No, I haven't seen it. I might slip out and go get it and come back in sure. just to show it to you. Because sure. I've never seen another one. Yeah. And I, I've got a few Arkham House first editions that I, you know. That I treasure. That's 
those are probably the rarest things I have. So you got anything on the shelf back there? Well, okay, N- nothing award, but uh, as in that would be actually worth mine. But if I were to choose, what, what I feel is the most precious is this um, version of the Vanishing Tower that has been uh, illustrated by Michael Whelan. And because um, obviously there's also the illustration side of it, right? Michael Whelan. <laughs> Right. Um, and there's drawings in it that I've never seen anywhere in a, like, they're just amazing. Wow. Um, I'll show you another couple because they're out of this world. They're all um, wailing? Yeah. All the, the, the whole book is illustrated by, uh, it's like having a huge series of Siritongo covers. <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. Oh, wow. That's Coram, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, nothing that would be actually worth amazing money, but certainly uh, dear to my heart. So we kind of touched on this already, but something I definitely wanted to touch on was uh, underrated, you know, sword and sorcery gems, novels, short stories, whatever, you know, maybe more unknown, uh, obscure writers or unknown stories from popular writers. What do you guys have in that regard? Well, people either love or hate, but I mentioned just a minute ago those Death Dealer novels by James Silk. They do get progressively weaker as they go, and like I said, there are four of them. They're much better than the Glenn Danzig comics. You know, as try as I might, I could not like those comics because the artwork was great in the Glenn Danzig comics. I guess it's Verotica or Verotica or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they look great, but there was little to no script or story there to them. Kind of like, you know, his, his first horror movie. I haven't seen anything he's done after that. But, you know, I'm always rooting for that guy, but it just always doesn't <laughs> work for me. But uh, anyway, back to those novels. James Silk, it says on the cover by James Silk or Frank Frazetta. Of course, Frank Frazetta didn't do any writing. He created that character. And it was around all this time, and people were wondering, what the hell is that? Because the the other, like the the Kane books, you know, you had some Frazetta art used on that and you go oh, that's Kane when you see it or you know that's Conan but then you see these death you're like, what is what is this guy so James Silk wrote these novels and the first couple of them I think are really good so, like I said people either love them or hate them so that that's some obscure stuff another obscure gem that I would recommend that readers pick up is um, The Sorcerer's Shadow by David C. Smith it's one of my favorite um, sword and sorcery novels of all time and then of course you know there's um Ramsey Campbell's Briar or Briray, however you say the character's name, but the, that was published by DMR in Far Away and Never, the whole collection. And that, that is the best collection to get. I mean, it's been published before that, but it has all of Ramsey Campbell's sword and sorcery, other than things he'd finished, like fragments for Robert E. Howard or, uh, you know, whatever, just yeah. they, or he had collaborated with other writers. But uh, that, that's a really good obscure sword and sorcery novel from somebody who not novel, but collection from, um, so you know, I've said too, you've got to be, and you guys were mentioning horror and I've totally neglected this in the conversation, but I believe you, a, a writer needs to be very good at writing horror to be good at writing sword and sorcery. And Ramsey Campbell is a master of horror. And when you asked that question earlier, I was kind of like a deer in the headlights. I didn't know. I didn't expect that to say, what What do you read? What's your go-to to sort of inspire you? What I'm reading more than anything as far as fiction, I should have said said this, was I read. I mostly read horror. Man. Mm-hmm. I, I read horror far more than I do 
sword and sorcery. And my two main horror writers are Thomas Ligotti and Ramsey Campbell, uh, especially Ramsey Campbell's short fiction. Some of the novels, you know, I'm kind of lukewarm on, but I really like his, his short fiction, particularly his old short fiction. But uh, anyway, long answer. I'll let somebody else talk. <laughs> I got to be in the right mood for Ligotti, man. <laughs> yeah. You got to block out a whole month for yeah. Ligotti. Yeah. Go you ahead, Jason. You got to clear your calendar. <laughs> You're in for a depressive episode. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, well, me and How, we're all of the same mind here, I think, a lot, because every time Howie says something like that, <laughs> to, you know, because I was just going to say David C. Smith. I do love The Sorcerer's Shadow. That's a great book. Um, I also love his character, Oron. Oron's great. Um, those books are awesome. If you want kind of a, uh, someone who's kind of like in between a Conan and a Kane, would you say that, Howie? Would you agree with that as an Oron? I mean, yeah, it's kind of a, he's a dark figure kind of like A dark that. figure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the bull man. I would recommend David C. Smith for that. Before I mention Michael Shea, but I would really tell people to, to search out the Nift the lean book and the uh a book he wrote called in yana the touch of and dying it's they're so weird i mean they're like the weirdest sword and sorcery i've probably ever read it, it maybe the only comparison would be like jack vance maybe gene wolf or something like that mm. because it's very weird but once you get to the end the payoff is so good and the characters are really bad there's so many <laughs> there's so much uh gruesome depictions of things the there's so many um like florid uh vivid descriptions of gruesome things you know what i mean it's a uh, it's just something you don't always get so i'd recommend michael shay for that and, and like how he said thomas legati he has a really great story i think it's his only real i mean you could call it sword and sorcery but um it's probably philosophical horror in the guise of that it, it's called masquerade of a dead sword that's a that's mm -hmm. a great story i recommend people go read you know i hate to forget something every time i do one of these i forget <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if I just, Clark Ashton Smith is a good one. I mean, he's pretty popular and people know about him, but I don't know how much people really read him anymore. So right. I would say that too. Oh, in the Ramsey Campbell, I got to say, people should really get that uh, collection of Ryer stories. They're really good. I think you do need to write horror to be a good sword and sorcery writer. And Ramsey Campbell's one of the top guys that we're actually, <laughs> I don't even know if I should say this because people. We're trying to write a song about changer of names, so that'll probably be like uh, somewhere soon. I really I love that story. That. Yeah. yeah, awesome. I'm not nearly as knowledgeable as the other two gentlemen, and so I'm hoping that when I say uh, oh, this, this is the book I thought was lesser known, that they're not gonna go, and that's complete mainstream. One <laughs> 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 of the one of the novels I really enjoyed, and it's very early fantasy. It's uh, Eric Brighteyes by H. Ryder Haggard. I classify that as sword and sorcery, or at least to an extent. And it's got this great quality that uh, Broken Sword picked up later on of kind of pastiching uh, Viking Age tales with kind of a bit of magic thrown into it. And it's, it's, it's kind of dark. There's romance into it also that comes with the context of the years when it was written in. I think that, you know, romance was a big thing in in those days. Yeah, Eric Brighteyes would be one of the, the books that when I say, hey, have you read Eric Brighteyes? Everybody's like, no. I have uh, not read that one. I haven't either. But I did buy it on your recommendation, Joe. So I still have it on my reading pile. Cheers. <laughs> 
<laughs> Most of my recent readings have come from all you guys. You know, Howie, uh, Richard Tierney, and Joe was the reason I read The Broken Sword and why I had a probably like a depressive episode for a week after reading it. <laughs> uh, look, there's a, there's a thing, right? Epic is a big word, right? Mm. And I think that for me, epic has a, a kind of a tragic quality. And the Broken Sword and Eric Brighteyes just do a massive job of that. <laughs> yeah, I know what to expect you now. You want to be in a good mood when you're... <laughs> Noted. <laughs> you're not going to be out there. <laughs> so uh, did either of you guys, uh, Jason and Joe, did you guys have a chance or time to read the Richard Tierney, any of Simon Gita stories? Yeah, you know, I said that I hadn't... I hadn't read a Simon of Gita story, but I realized I did. I read uh, The Ring of Set before because it's in Swords Against Darkness, number one, right? Yeah. And so I just forgot about it. And once I went back, I was like, oh, yeah, I read this story, of course. It's a great story. That's the only one I've read is The Ring of Set. But it, it is really great. I have a lot of questions about where the character goes. I, I know that he there was a lot of collaborations. I think uh, Robert Price wrote a story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. With him. It's in, the, uh, it's in that collection. And it involved... Right, and he kind of wove in like a Gnosticism to the all the, all the other mythos that's involved in the historical fiction. I generally like the historical fiction angle. You know what I mean? Like the Simon of Gita is kind of a lot like uh, like Brand McMorn. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the historical fiction of the Picts. It's just kind of ripe for that injection of horror. You know, and the fact that it's kind of a Lovecraftian mythos horror is perfect yep. <laughs> for us because we're just going to read it as fans anyway. The, Simon was kind of. To me, he's kind of similar to Cain in that he's a biblical reference. You know what I mean? Because so Carl Edward Wagner's Cain is, is based off the bi biblical character of Cain. And, and so is Simon of Gita, is Simon Magus, right? Yep, that's the right. Bible. So right. there's that really interesting element. But I think a lot of this stuff that is like um, historical fiction that might interweave Lovecraftian mythos or a horror element is it doesn't have like the oppressive cosmicism, you know what I mean, of... Uh, the source material of Lovecraft, you know what I mean? Like Lovecraft would look at the little dealings of these cultures as just moments in an uncaring universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there's that, there's that, there's that, it's almost like writers as fans of Lovecraft writing fan fiction, you know, with their own characters and using history as the backdrop and then interjecting the Lovecraft as kind of um, fans or to have that core element. Cause it doesn't get any better than that to have something eldritch and or you know so old right just the fact that things are so old is kind of where the horror comes from so i really enjoy that story i gotta read the rest of them for sure yeah you'll love them and just before we get too far into richard howie you knew richard personally for people who may not be familiar why don't you just tell us a bit about richard's work and how you uh, came to know him well richard how i came to know him i had come in contact with somebody at one time you know back in the 90s when I really got in early nineties, when I really got into all this sword and sorcery stuff, I met a lot of people that were sort of musical idols to me. And that really held no, I really had little interest in that anymore, but I got so much into reading these old sword and sorcery books. I was like, I was just fascinated by these people who wrote and I wanted to reach out to some of them. And, and I had contacted a, a handful of guys and I managed to get an email for Richard and got in touch with him. And surprisingly, he was very cordial. We started to correspond. And I'd read, I'd first discovered Richard's writing in, um, Jason mentioned uh, Swords Against Darkness. And matter of fact, I have those right here. That, hmm. uh, can you see the whole book? Yeah. I need to hold it up further. Okay, so this is Swords of Darkness, Volume 1. 
which was published in 1977, and it had the uh, Ring of Set was the first Simon Gitta story. And then these are all Simon Gitta stories I'm referring to. And then in volume two, it was also in 1977, was um, The Scroll of Toth. Mm -hmm. And and then 1978 was volume three that had um, The Sword of Spartacus in it, which I hijacked for a Calder Bourne song and made it about my own thing. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, involving the Calder Bourne um, mascot, Thorn. Right. But uh, anyway, so I started this conversation. I'd read a bunch of his stuff already, and, and I guess he maybe thought he was kind of forgotten or whatever. And he was glad to have somebody who was interested in what he was doing because to me, he was like a, just an iconic figure. So we started this correspondence and we talked for a while and we talked right up to his death. He died in 2022. He was born in 1936. He was born the year Robert E. Howard died. And I think Andrew Offit, Andrew J. Offit, who uh, was a renowned science fiction and fantasy writer, he edited these um, Swords Against Darkness books. And he even uh, speculated that, you know, maybe jokingly, that uh, Richard was Robert E. Howard in, incarnate, <laughs> or reincarnated, rather, because he uh, he died the year, or he was born the year Howard committed suicide right. and died. So anyway, Richard once told me he had more in common with Robert E. Howard than any other writer that he felt that he did. So, but he was also really into... Um, the history of early Christianity, history of ancient Rome, just would take years and years of reading to get to the point he was at to be able to to implement the kind of detail in the stories that he did mm -hmm. in those Simon Geta stories as far as imperial Rome. So there was, uh, he, like I said, he was interested in early Christianity, the history of early Christianity. He had given talks. I know at least one, when I was still uh, talking to him right before he died in 2022, he... Um, had given a, a lecture at a church a while back um, on the history, early history of Christianity. And he was also interested in Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, basically in a nutshell, at least as it applies to what we read, is, okay, so the world is created by an evil God. And um, that's, and as it applies to somebody like the fiction of, H.P. Lovecraft, or even more pronounced in Thomas Ligotti's work, you have the macrocosm, which is whatever your concept of the source of creation is, beating down on the microcosm, which is man. And that's cosmic horror. And I use this word again in a nutshell, is that you have the macrocosm terrorizing the microcosm. And so that's kind of where the Gnostic thing comes in. Really, to, to get by it deep into the Gnostic background of Richard's works, I would recommend talking to um, Robert M. Price. Have you have you talked with him? About I haven't. Principles? I haven't talked with him yet, but I'm going to reach yeah, out to him. He would be a good guest to have on here. He also is publishing. Um, he was the heir to Lynn Carter's estate, and he's publishing Flashing Swords again, which is Lynn Carter's fantasy anthology from you know, way back in the seventh. So Joe, did, you did have a chance to, did you read the entire collection or just a few stories? I read uh, Swords Against Caesar, the origin of the character, I suppose. So first of all, I loved it. And it, it invoked a number of weird feelings because for a start, how am I going to put it? If you read, uh, if Howie read a story by Moorcock that said, um, 
and Elric threw Stormbringer and said to the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and you'd be like, what? Um, because, <laughs> because all of the places are... <laughs> yeah. Are my, my, my father was. or uh, So, you know, flicking a sword and sorcery novel, but also with familiar places in it, it was very, very strange. Never felt that. So <laughs> it was a first. <laughs> Secondly... I also felt a bit stupid because I started writing my own novel. I'm not a writer, despite you saying, you know, writing and being a writer, different things. I tried. Uh, so the main character would be this uh, early Middle Ages monk that performs a, like a reverse conversion. So he goes from being Christian to a pagan because of, let's call it divine intervention. Yeah. Like the opposite of, of, Jesus. He's a Christian, but Odin kind of makes it clear you're Odin incarnate, so off we go and destroy the whole Christian uh, <laughs> reality. Um, and the reason why I felt stupid is there were so many commonalities with uh, with Simon. Uh, you know, that kind of focus hatred on something in particular for him. It was Rome and the uh, the setting, so all these kind of Latin names and uh, uh, Roman culture popping up because early Middle Ages, really, at the time of uh, Germanic invasions, the, the main culture is still, uh, still Roman with a heavy Byzantine footprint. Uh, yeah, so aside from, from these, which are just my own personal impression, uh, or, or rather, feelings that the feelings that the novel has stirred. I just loved it. I loved the I loved the restrained use of of sorcery. How it was like used here and there, but when it was used, it just punched you in the face. I, I mean, one of the first, one of the very early scenes when um, uh, Simon's in the arena and uh, with the sword of Spartacus, mm -hmm. somehow you know. Killing, uh, killing causes the Etruscan demon to yeah. come down from the sky and blast 50,000 people and then leave the whole scene, the, the, the massacre. Uh, it was unexpected and very felt like watching a movie, but a really well done one. But yeah, I, I like, I, I, I will summarize it like this after this rambling. It was very classy. I like when you've got something as powerful as magic, but you use it uh, with, with a drip. And when you knew you use it, you do it really well. So, yeah, it was very much appreciated. And I will be finishing uh, the whole Simon Gita corpus. Because one of the things that stood out to me reading it, just Richard's historical prowess and you being Italian, it probably even stands out even more so to you actually, you know, living in the region and knowing personally the locations that he's speaking of. Is, is it, was it hard for you to believe that that was written by an American? Uh, yes, yes, and no. Uh, no, when it comes to uh, to some of the names which were made up, but almost purposely off line. Yeah. You know, no, no person would have that name. But then, when it came to the depth with which he described society, you know, the whatever goes on every day, the routines, the even like life as a gladiator. It was very realistic. It wasn't done in a in a cheesy way or anything. It was very accurate. There was definitely profound research behind that. You could really smell it, you know? Mm. Like 
the way being Italian, I'm obsessed with food. The one thing that permanently features in my novel is description of the food. So not wanting to make it up, I went and retrieved the Dere Culinaria, which is the first ever recipe book that's been transcribed and is like uh, coming from imperial times. And so I could stick to exactly what people were eating and how they were cooking it. And like 100%, that's one of the things Richard Tierney did, as well as everything else that went on. So familiarizing with everyday life, you know, it, it's such a commitment to want to go and know everything that there is to know about a society before starting to write about it. Yeah, I don't know how much time went into researching those days before he published the novel, but it was amazing. Just speaking on the biblical references, uh, Jason mentioned uh, Cain being a reference to the biblical Cain. I don't know if you re- read this story, Joe, not, not to have all these spoilers out here, but we're talking about it. In the story, The Blade of the Slayer, the Simon of Gitta story, that's uh, another b- biblical reference he puts in there to Cain because that's Cain's blade that he uses in the story. There you go. Oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get this whole collection and read them. Yeah, for sure. Oh, oh yeah. Well, I, I will say this though, as if, and, I'm, and maybe I'm wrong, and you can know, just look. If it goes well, great. If it doesn't, <laughs> good. <laughs> edit. That's the magic of editing. <laughs> <What> is <laughs> yeah. What were you doing? Were you on a podcast? No, no, I was. <laughs> the ring is set. Surely that's the phoenix on the sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, same uh, the the story directly after that, I had it written down. It may have been, uh, yeah, it was the Ring of Set and both the uh, the one directly after that. I don't have the name, but both of them were Phoenix on the Sword. Uh, oh, the Scroll of Thought. The Kepri one too. The Soul of Kepri, I think it was. Yeah, that was another one. The Ring of Set. I remember the Phoenix on on the Sword. Another spoiler because that's another. We've done two uh, Conan stories in the new album. Uh, the other is the Phoenix on the Sword. Oh, and, oh uh, awesome. There you go. And, That's you know, cool. the sorcerer notices that the fat kind of noble guy takes out the ring and is shaped as a serpent. He loses his, his mind <laughs> and stabs him on the spot and, and regains his powers. Right? You mentioned um, Boy of the Slayer or the Kane, the Kane story that Richard wrote. Yeah. Carl Edward Wagner did not want him using his character in that story. He had even discussed that with him. So I guess oh. Richard just changed the spelling of the name and went ahead and did it anyway. So it was supposed to be Carl's Kane then. Oh yeah, that was that was Carl's Kane. Oh wow, wow, early fan art. <laughs> so I wanted to. Uh, I know we just uh, touched on this a few minutes ago, but a mutual friend of ours, me, uh, John Zaremba, he's also a writer. Me and him kind of share similar thoughts on the Broken Sword. Now I understand that you know it's a Norse tragedy. I love the storytelling, beautifully written and all that stuff, but, you know, the theme just makes me feel icky. It doesn't sit well with me just thinking, you know, there's nothing that you can do to change how this goes. So, I, like I said, after I read it, I just felt kind of icky, and, you know, I probably will never read this again. So <laughs> how, do you, how do you guys feel uh, personally just about the theme of Destiny specifically in that fashion? You're talking about the incest? Oh, well, that's definitely a part of it. That's definitely a part of it. I just, I, I meant was more of it. Specifically, too, like uh, your story is written. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a part of it, the incest part. <laughs> I probably would have left that out. 
it, it was a bit of a, disappoint, a disappointment the first time I read it because, you know, such a downer. I mean, the the ending is and the way things go in the book. But I think all the, the things that are good about it outweigh that as far as I'm concerned. And that's one of the most beautiful usage uh, usages of the English language I think I've seen in a fantasy novel. And, well, okay, it is a sword and sorcery novel. And it's the only one I've ever seen a writer used elements. They're more high fan, they're more um, high fantasy elements like trolls and elves and that kind of thing. True, yeah, true. But, but no, I don't think anybody else could have done that. I don't think anybody else could have taken those high fantasy elements, but made this hard as nails sword and sorcery novel with some of those things that were in that novel and that whole Nordic or Norse Nordic tra- tragedy thing is one of the things that it has this darkness about it that that is so pronounced that it's sword and sorcery it's not it is not high fantasy right and i thought that was an interesting contrast to just reading it where you have all these like you said these high fantasy characters or different types of monsters or what have you but the the story itself is so gritty it just there's a it's a it's a contrast it is yeah it is very gritty it's it's a very dark read there's like elements of um of pessimism from Valgar, just from his existence, you know, he hates his, the situation he's in so much. He's a product of, he's, he's just a, a soulless kind of chain. He thinks he's soulless, you know, and he's just a shadow of another man. And even his mom, his, what's after his mother's name, Imrit goes in and creates him. He goes in this, he's held her captive for 900 years or whatever. Yeah. She has this little philosophical passage about how your life is like, like a, rotting flesh on a skull. I can't remember what she says. It's actually a beautiful bit of writing there. It's just so dark. I mean, the doom is foretold so that you know it's coming. It's not a surprise. Even to the characters, they they all know they're doomed and that's almost okay with them. So it's almost not a... Broken Sword really has everything in it. It's like a romance also, like a kind of a romance that's... Yeah, Yeah, it's a romance. (laughs) romance. (laughs) (laughs) But you know that... it's really heavy handed with that. You have to read so much romance and you're like, God dang, it's, you know what I mean? Like and it's the worst kind. So it's also a dark fantasy. Like how we said, I think it is sword and sorcery, but you can, if you did want to make an argument, maybe you could call it dark fantasy. Like Carl Edward Wagner said, his books were dark fantasy, but yeah, it really did have it all. I mean, the characters were so interesting. I mean, just the uh, the writing is so beautiful and, and so visual. Like when um, Scaflock is growing up, being adopted by the elves and all the learning their ways. That there's a passage where he uh, he's somewhere in the wild hunt comes along, right? And it's such a, a a great piece of of writing right there. It's so vivid. You just like gives you goosebumps. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of passages like that in there. The battle scenes are amazing. Some of the best little i should have pulled a quote or something because i remember at the end there's this uh i mean it's got to be the last few pages of the book it's when scaflock is dealing death you know what i mean and it's just talking there's just a whole paragraph that is probably the most perfect battle paragraph that has ever been written have to go back i don't because i don't want to fuck it up but (laughs) (laughs) everyone needs to read the broken sword if you're listening to this because it really does have it uh, everything it's got like um a bunch of archetypal things within it not it it is like it's like a tragedy in the classic sense there's also this element of the sins of the father visiting down on his children so hard you know what i mean like they Mm -hmm. really bear the brunt of his 
bad deeds and there's this element of wondering uh how much the witch's wrath has unfolded in all these different ways i mean she's created so many butterfly effects you know what i mean yeah by cursing them you know what i mean it's just so interesting to watch it all unfold it as these doomed characters are playing out uh it's also really interesting that everything exists in the broken sword like they're every european mythology is true right like greek mythology is true it exists the irish sin or shin she joe she right uh, are in there um and then it's got the whole Viking thing. And also, it kind of implies that Christianity is also true. You know what I mean? Because everything is scared of Christianity yeah. coming. It means their end. You know what I mean? So that's a whole other just kind of... It's another layer that's just as important as, and impactful as all the other elements. The book just like has so many multi-layered things that you just... There's so much to... Uh, to enjoy you know what i mean it's a uh, it's quite a book well uh, first of all that i have to commend howie and jason on their description let me see so first of all the element of darkness right and i would even call it hopelessness that is from the get-go to the last word in the book paul anderson was uh, american but he was children of uh, scandinavian parents danish i think there is a Scandinavian darkness to the whole thing. When Scandinavians want to be dark, they they, they really manage it. <laughs> um, and th this hopelessness and this and this, it's like um, the thing about the broken sword is that it's relentless. You read words and you go, "Don't kiss her." Uh, <laughs> No, Especially at the end, the last. Yeah, okay, now don't do that. Don't do it. That could be the name of the book. Don't kiss her. <laughs> exactly, and then it's like the hopelessness grows, and you go, okay, so there's destiny, and it's written, and you can can't do anything about it. So you think, well, I'm just like a mindless puppet in the hands of destiny. So you know what? I'll just call it quits. But you can't because it's destiny. So you can't even get away. That's from. what I, yeah, that, that's basically what I was hitting. And I, I could, I hate that. <laughs> and it's just, it's like, okay, I am who I am. I have the freedom to do whatever I want. And I have to be okay with the fact that someone somewhere a long time ago has decided all of this. So are my thoughts mine? Are my actions mine? From there, you know, he keeps pounding on. Every word is heavy. And the assessment on the battle paragraphs. Absolutely agree that they are the best battle paragraphs ever. Yeah, they're very, very good. In that same vein, just wanted to ask you guys uh, specific moments in stories that stand out. You're not favorite story or anything like that, but maybe a specific moment in a story or a paragraph that you find particularly awesome, you know, uh, an event in a story that you saw play out that was satisfying. Oh, I mean, there are a lot of those. Um, I was just talking yesterday with uh, Matthew Knight, the singer for Call of Born. We were talking about some Bram McMorn stories, and I mentioned that uh, battle scene in uh, Kings of the Night is one of my all-time favorite battle scenes. And Howard even remarked in a letter to um, to one of his correspondents, probably somebody else in the Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft circle, about how proud he was of that particular battle scene. 
But I mean, that's one of the things, and that's all I could think of right off the top of my head because we were talking about that yesterday. But right. I'm sure, uh, Jason and Joe can probably elaborate much better than I can on that. Sort of thing. Well, I can just remember real quick just something that Eternal Champion did that I because I love this story, Worms of the Earth. So it has it's a story that centers around Brand McMorn again. So you get that uh, Pictish mythology that no one really knows about. Howard had such a rich palette to. To create from you know what i mean with the picks because there's just not that much notes. Right. you get the mystery of the picks and then it has the lovecraftian element in the end of the story it kind of hit me because the brand mcmorn goes through such links to exact his revenge on rome and and, and titus in this story and he brings up the worms of the earth which are the you know they're never really described fully but they're like you know horrifying and they're destroying this roman legion and toppling their towers and and Brand McMoran looks at Titus with disgust. He's gone mad from everything he's seen. You know what I mean? The the slaughter and the the sight of the worms of the earth coming up and destroying everything was just uh, broken. And Brand McMoran just is kind of disgusted at what he did. He, he again he he kind of evoked this unnatural evil that he doesn't understand. This kind of sorceress element, I suppose. So that was a it just kind of jumps to my mind. Like, oh, that's instantly relatable you know going too far mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah. your uh in your vengeance or whatever it's not that it's just uh and it really struck me so much that i wrote a song based on that story so great song you and howie both have great songs about worms of the earth yeah what what jason just mentioned i i recall a line from my my song was called finder of the black stone and mm-hmm. um the one line that and regarding what you just said that reminded me of was I gave up humanity to crush my foe. Right. Right before the chorus. So that's yeah. that's pretty much it. Yeah, that that is a really that story leaves an impression. And right. what was the name of the Eternal Champion song about Worms of the Earth? Just called Worms of the Earth. Worms okay. The Earth. Mm-hmm. It was an Italian band and Joe probably knows something about the Crucis. Yes. They did a a, a concept album. It was the yeah, the year after I released Anron Shall Fall, they released this whole concept album about Brandon Moore. Really? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Wow. What do you know about that band, Joe? Funny enough, we played together in our very first show in 2002. But they were, were very well known in Italy, also because they were one of very few bands that originally came out singing in Italian. Mm. And they... Uh, their first demo was called uh, Fede Potere Vendetta, which means faith, power, and vengeance. Uh, so, yeah, they, they've been like stalwarts of the Italian metal scene, and uh, Worms of the Earth is highly recommended. Very good album. I want to go with the first thing that came into my head because it's, I'm assuming that's always the right answer, and that would be Elric blowing the horn and putting an end to it. Also, because it, it it has it ties in with the general theme of this conversation about sword and sorcery. What one of the very first examples of fantasy literature going back to I think it's the fifteen hundreds is uh, Orlando Furioso. You know, Elric goes to find the sword of uh, I think the horn of uh, Roland or whatever he does. I can't remember, but there's definitely a, a mention uh, of Roland. Roland is the main character in uh, Orlando Furioso, so uh, has that little Italian mm. kind of 
connection right at the very end uh, <laughs> of the saga when he destroys the world as he knew it. Because supposedly we're in the world after, right? Right. What, right? what comes after him blowing the horn is our world. So, yeah, that that, that would be it. And, of course, uh, Michael Whelan with the, with the green painting, uh, you know, the Frost and Fire Copper is... Right, uh, mm -hmm. kind of immortalizes it. So. That's a great answer, uh, Joe. I was just we, we were talking about the broken sword, and there's that kind of similarity between Stormbringer, his Tearfing, right. right? The broken yeah. sword, and the way there's... Valgard is killed in the same manner as Elric. It kind of slips from his hand and aims itself at him, and, and you know, fails itself. Absolutely, and 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Broken Sword has so heavily inspired uh, Moorcock. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, it must be an open exactly. thing that he says. Because first thing I thought of the first few lines, Imric and Elric are not that distant. In the, right. Actually, the, the actual way it sounds. And uh, they're kind of elves in the same way, dark elves, kind of yeah. evilish, kind of elves, you know. That's right. Uh, so if there's... Uh, there's definitely heavy influence, um, but I think he even admits it. I mean, I don't think Morco has ever hidden the fact that uh, Broken Sword was highly influential on on the whole Elric saga. And yeah, absolutely. The the moment, the the way the whole thing ends is total uh, Stormbringer. What what does Stormbringer say again? Goodbye. My friend, I was a thousand times more evil than thou. Yes, <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, we're going up on two hours here, so I guess uh, just to wind down and put a bow and everything, we'll just go around and give you all a chance to plug some things and say what's on the horizon. Uh, Howie, I know you got the Sword and Sorcery Heavy Metal series on the Echoes of Crime YouTube. Give us a, a breakdown of what you got going on and plan for the future with that. At this point, point i just try to surprise myself every week or so and and i'm just doing the last episode was matthew knight and i discussing the solomon kane story the hills of the dead and yesterday we just did another video discussing cl moore's hell's guard and um so i'm just going to keep rolling with the podcast i've got a couple of stories that are going to be published next month there's a story in uh, DMR books that there's a new DMR book series called Dive of the Sword. I had a story uh, in the first volume of that uh, last year that dealt with the Anglo-Saxon invasion of Britain uh, or was set during that time. Didn't so much deal with, I mean, that background. It was called um, Secrets Only Dragons. No, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something there, Joe? No, not in, in approval. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and then I have uh, a new, the well, getting around to what you actually asked me there. Uh, next month, there's going to be Dobbin Sword Volume 2, and it has a story set during the Thirty Years' War, which spans 1618, 1648, uh, uh, and centered in, in Central Europe or Germany, um, dealing with a the cell sword who has no name and no memories um, other than recent battle and he is sent on a mission to rescue a woman accused of witchcraft from the witch prison in Bamberg 
this is also overlaps in the Bamberg Blitz trials with one on in, in Germany. And uh, that story is called Reflections of a Haunted Mind. That's going to be published uh, next month in Diving the Sword 2. And I've also got a Sword and Planet story called On the Eve of Zerket Bull, which uh, involves a character of mine named Tharg Tynuth. He's like a cat man. He's like this jaguar, jaguar man with tusks and um, they're laser gun battles and, and of course there's a it's more of a like a medieval weaponry as well you know like a, a in some ways like a standard sword and planet story but he was one of the characters from my uh, short novel under a dim blue sun and uh, that's going to be published in Kursova next month I think the date is March 16th when that magazine comes out and then of course um, I'm hoping to be able to record the next Calder Born album this year as well so that's pretty much what's what's going on with me how you've been writing man mm-hmm. that's good cool, stuff huh? yeah i love to hear that thanks cool yeah what about you jason i know you got the sword worship magazine going on what else you got in the uh oh pipeline? yeah we we just released the second issue of sword worship which is like a little uh fanzine we're doing now it was just going to be like a little one page uh newsletter for eternal champions since we're not putting out so much like uh, inner workings of the band out on social media, like kind of the more personal stuff. And so it was going to be like a little newsletter. It just kind of snowballed from there into an actual fanzine because we have so many ideas we want to do. So now we're publishing uh, comics and short fiction in it. Uh, Sky Hernstrom, who we should kind of plug here, who's a great writer in the genre, a great modern writer of this uh, sword and sorcery and, might be one of the best doing it, if not the best doing it. So in my opinion, you know, he's great. We got him to do a comic on the first issue and this new issue, he's got a short story and it's kind of the beginning of his new, um, alternative Atlantis, mm. uh, saga. It's really cool. Um, so I hope people pick it up. Well, we, we sold out of the first run of them, but we might, uh, do another run of them for hell's heroes. And I'm just starting to send these out this week. So it's really new. And actually, sword worship is something I want to involve you two guys in as well, Joe and Howie, because uh, I like to feature some of your artwork or short stories in it. Because it's really not just about heavy metal; it's more about uh, the inspiration for heavy metal. Mm. So we're gonna we have some things lined up for issue three and four, which are pretty interesting. So, well, I'm certainly interested, so, and uh, just shoot me an email and let me know what you want. I sure will. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe, I you got to get that story published, man, because I've got a taste of it. He sent me the first chapter and the whole arc of of the the monk with the reverse conversion is so cool. <laughs> so I really it's, hope to. It's actually not that original, and in that uh, there's a small. It's a short story, or um, it's not a novel by uh, i think it's brian bates uh, the name is uh the way of the weird oh cool uh, it's the story of a monk uh that goes on a missionary and so so he's he's on a evangelization kind of mission to uh pagan tribes in uh, britain and ends up questioning his whole existence possibly kind of performing uh, a reverse 
but I think in the end it is more like uh, you know discovering more mystical ways to see the universe rather than becoming out and out pagan. Um, uh, but <clears throat> but yeah, cool. I, I, I let, let's say I took that more to the extreme. Yeah, I love it though. So I'd love to involve you in anything you wanted to do with that. So. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll try and do that, especially because I started off um, uh, kind of very heavy handed, a bit inspired by, I don't know if you know this novel called The Name of the Rose. Mm. Uh, yep. Is it inspired the movie? No, it, it inspired the movie. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, I've seen the movie. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really cool, right? The way yeah you wouldn't, you wouldn't call that fantasy or sword and sorcery or anything, but set in a you know medieval monastery and um, yeah, there's a lot of that where it becomes genius is that it teases you into thinking there's supernatural elements to right. it, but then in the end, sorry, sorry for the spoilers, but there isn't. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's cool. a lot of uh, the the writer Umberto Eco um, is um, first of all I think he you know, won the Nobel for literature I think, but oh, wow. uh, secondly he was a semantics professor in university, so he played a lot around words and yeah. you know the whole thing is about words in the right. end. Um, but uh so i started off very heavy-handed like that um and then i went look this is not this is not how it should be so in, instead i kind of took a step back and started writing small short stories which cool. i think fit the the whole uh character better um so I, 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 when i have something reworked i might shoot off <laughs> a couple oh. of short stories and see what what i'll, I'll probably submit Submitted to you guys first because um, uh, I'm a what's it called exophonic writer, mm -hmm. so a person yeah. that writes in not their native language. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so you know, gotta watch out for grammar. With <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> blunders. <laughs> well, uh, and so. The so next like, thing we're uh, working on is the split, which Joe announced. We have a uh, Eternal Champion is going to do a split with Doomsword, and so that's kind of the next thing we had. we're working on our album as well. So we should record it this summer after this little tour we're going on. So, but that's the thing I'm, I'm really looking forward to is that doing that. Split. I know. I'm so excited. I know. Uh, so behind in the actually making the whole thing, uh, like finalizing it, but uh, yeah. it's very exciting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> Jason, you got anything going on fiction-wise? I'm trying to follow up The God Blade, yeah, with a collection of short stories. Again, The God Blade was just, I would never do that again. That's too long. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. it's, a short, it's a short novella, I suppose, but really the short story is the is the ideal format for this kind of thing. And I want to go off and not write about just Rannon. It's got to be about the other characters, too, because... I know I've kind of, kind of done all I wanted to with him. He kind of served his purpose in the Godblade, and I don't know where to go with him besides that. The whole world is changing now after the Godblade, so it's kind of um, like the world is disintegrating uh, now. The Breaker's been killed, and mm -hmm. so there's all this, uh, you know, entropy is uh, sped up, 
and, and the, the followers of the cult are really freaking out because things didn't pan out the way they wanted them to. <laughs> and certain gods are dead and some unpredictable gods are still alive. And so, yeah, I'm kind of doing that. I'm, I'm trying to stick to the short story. So hopefully I can get together five or seven short stories and publish them, you know, and maybe put it all together because... Well, the Godblade was really a novella and not short stories because Eternal Champion had been writing so many lyrics referencing the story already that I kind of had to fill the story with so much that right. I had already referenced in the songs. So that's kind of why the length is like that. But from here on out, it's just short stories. I couldn't, I couldn't do that again. I, I must have been writing it in like a fugue state or something because I don't even really remember writing. <laughs> and I know I was just in my back house, just feverishly like writing it, and then really you know really going at it i, I must have been in some some weird state because <laughs> so, i couldn't imagine doing it again <laughs> well gentlemen it's uh, been a pleasure chatting unless you guys have any questions for each other that's all i got i, uh, I can't it. go ahead no that's about it that's about it yeah well that's it's all i can think of uh, i was going to ask um I was going to ask Jason about that, uh, about the Godblade, and and if he was working on a sequel to it. But we we got the answer on that, and uh, so I I'm pretty much caught up on the news today. <laughs> and, uh, but Jason, yeah, shoot me a, an email about that. Um, I sure will. Or whatever, Facebook or wherever, and uh, I'm I'm yeah. definitely interested in in your magazine. Cool. We'd love to have you, man. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Great. Love to hear it. Thanks. Well, gentlemen, thank you again. Uh, we got two hours here. I think that was pretty good. So whenever I get it edited and posted, I'll send it out to you guys. And I think Howie's going to be posting this as an episode of Sword and Sorcery Heavy Metal as well. Yeah, just let cool. me know how long to sit on it. All right, no problem. It'll probably be about two weeks. All right. That's okay. All right, brother. Brothers. Appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. Hey, gentlemen, great talking to you guys. Great seeing you. Thank you guys again. Yeah, good seeing you. Y'all have a great rest of your day. Take care. Absolutely. Bye-bye. See you guys. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Jason, Howie, and Joe. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>